Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, March 30th, 2022, but you will be listening to this and seeing it on April Fool's Day. I love that. Our guest today is criminal defense attorney Andy Hale, who joins us from Chicago. Andy specializes in wrongful conviction cases. Andy is also a documentary producer, is currently hosting a series of podcasts about the 1960 Starved Rock Murders, which explores a potential wrongful conviction in the murders of three women. Andy's been a guest before. We welcome you back, Andy. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Yeah, last time you were here, we were talking about your HBO special, the documentary, which was fascinating, and I want to get into it later with you. But since then, you've started a podcast, um, and that really goes into greater depth of the case that you've been working on. Yeah, the podcast, you know, it, it's the Star Rock Murders with Andy Hale. The, I really wanted to provide more information. You know, I mean, you can only do so much in a three-part uh, docuseries, but in a podcast, you can really take a much deeper dive. And it's just been such a great way to educate people and provide a lot of the just case details that people just would have no idea existed. Yeah, I love that. I love that you're making that available for listeners and people who are really interested in this case. And, and I think that's a, a great way to really, really get to understand something. And this one has so many facets. I have to tell you, I thought one thing going into the documentary, I thought something else coming out of it, totally confused about who may have done what, which I want to get into later. Um, so we're very excited that you're here and that you're back. Also, we want to tell everyone we have really big news. True Crime Daily, the podcast is going to be featured on this week's Dateline. Uh, it's very exciting. They interviewed me about a case that we covered here on the podcast. It involves a murder for hire case that um, also included a New York City police officer at the time. The allegations are that she turned to her then boyfriend and said she wanted him to hire a hitman to kill her estranged husband because they were in the middle of a bitter divorce. Everything's caught on video and through audio tapes because then the FBI was part of the sting to arrest her. It's a huge case out of Long Island. This is the case of Valerie Cincinnati. We're going to get into that a little bit later, and we're going to play a clip for you because this episode is going to air on Friday as well. Okay, Andy, let's get to our cases here. Good. And it's interesting. All our cases have to do with murder for hire plots. 
just like the Valerie Cincinnelli case that's going to be featured on Dateline, I thought, let's have a theme here, shall we? So um, here are the cases. A gunman has been found guilty in the slaying of a former NBA star, Lorenzen Wright. His murderer, Billy Ray Turner, faces life in prison for his role in the hit, which police say was orchestrated by the basketball player's ex-wife, all over insurance money. Okay. But first, a doctor is left dead in a murder for hire plot. He was killed as part of a revenge killing. And the reason was because he somehow allegedly had a hand in the ultimate death of a patient that he was treating. And the patient's husband blamed the doctor and therefore hired three hitmen to carry out this, this vengeance. You know, what's interesting about this one, Andy, is that generally we're talking about life insurance, right? Or we're talking about, um, love triangles, but this one is about an 83 year old man who was furious that this man had taken his wife. What do you make of this? Yeah. I, I think what struck me was his age. And part of me thought he's 83. Uh, obviously super upset that he lost his wife, blames it on the doctor. Um, it struck me as somebody who just felt like I'm going out soon. I'm not going to be here much longer on this earth. I'm going to take out this doctor. I mean, I just can't believe you would do something like that. But his age is what struck me. 83 years old. Exactly. Exactly. I, I and as we're going to find out when we get into the case that, you know, he did file a complaint with the medical board against the doctor. The doctor was indeed disciplined for what happened to this woman. It basically all started from an infected toenail. And so he treated her. And then like two years later, the infection had spread. She had to have her foot amputated and then she ultimately died. And that was like the beginning of the end where her husband decides he's going to carry out true justice because he didn't feel that justice had happened in this case. And what's astonishing is it started from an ingrown infected toenail. Unbelievable. It starts from that. And then it looks like there's a two year period, you know, between the time of his wife. I think that her, her toenail, her, her toes amputated like in 2014. She's, she dies 2016. And the murder's not till 2018. So he's got two years of like stewing over this, just obviously obsessed over it. And then hatches this, hatches this ridiculous plot to kill the doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just, it was festering. It was, you know, everything was yeah. festering at the same time. So this case is out of Lodi, California, which is just south of Sacramento. The convicted murderer here, as we said, is 83 years old. Robert Lee was found guilty of first degree murder with a special circumstance of murder for financial gain in the killing of Dr. Thomas Schock, the podiatrist who treated his wife, Bonnie Lee. He was disciplined by the California Medical Board, and then he retired from medicine. And prosecutors say that Robert Lee never forgave him for his wife's death. So Dr. Shock was found shot to death in the hallway, doorway really of his home on the evening of August 1st, 2018. And what's going to be very interesting is how police pieced everything back. Next to the doctor's body was one page, one page from the medical complaint that belonged to Bonnie's case. Didn't have her name on it. It had her initials and there was a fingerprint on this page. Now that's what I find 
I, I, no one's been able to answer for me. Was that page left there by accident? Or was that like old school mafia? I leave, you know, the head of a horse, the head of a fish on your bed. I think it's old school mafia. Um, it struck me as being so incredibly dumb. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it seemed intentional. You know, you didn't need that page. It's not like it was directions to the house or a note about like the person's name and address. I could see that being like accidentally left. It's the first page of the complaint. It's nothing the the hired killers would need. You know, it seemed it was like kind of wedged against the door left, like like you say, to me, like an old school mob thing, which I, I, I hate to laugh because it's obviously tragic and it's not funny. But I what struck me about this was just how amateur ish the whole operation was, because that piece of paper, if it's not left, although I'm sure they could potentially suspect, you know, this guy, they could never prove it. But that that piece of paper, and we can talk about the good detective work, is what cracked the whole case. Mm-hmm. There was a fingerprint, one fingerprint on that piece of paper, which led back to one of the hitmen. There were three people. Uh, police said that he ended up hiring these three people. So it's not like he did it himself. And I find that also interesting. You know, when we think of, I always think that when you decide to do one of these murder for hire things, right, especially when you are basically asking either strangers or acquaintances to carry out a, a horrendous, horrific crime, which if you are caught and prosecuted, you're, you're like really going to be put away for a really long time. So I never understand why people take that risk. Just do it yourself. You know what? I, I agree. You've got three people, okay, that you don't really know. Um, but here, I want to talk about the fingerprint. Yeah. I've had so many cases where... Um, it's very hard to get fingerprints off of items. I mean, we always say this in, in some of our closing arguments. I could take a glass of water, pass it around the jury box, let all 12 people pass it to each other, and you might not get any suitable prints for comparison. You might have smudges and marks, but it's hard to get a suitable print for comparison. So the fact that they got a print on that document, submitted it to the fingerprint database, and then you have to have a hit. So this guy, one of the hitmen was already in the database to match it up. I thought was incredible detective work. Um, and it's that's 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 rare, you know. Um, and another thing I wanted to give a shout out to the detective for, you know, he saw that medical complaint. He he figured out he went online and he you can see this in the probable cause affidavit for the search warrant. He figured out that. Um, this guy, you know, uh, had accessed that document recently online. Um, and what they found then was, you know, he had he had basically gone online to print it out. And then when they go to his house for the search warrant, you know, they found page one left at the doctor's, you know, when he got murdered there. And the rest of the pages are in his house. So it's like, you know, they could connect. It's like the pieces of the puzzle. They had one piece at the crime scene and the other pieces at his house. I mean, I thought it was really, really good detective work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when the police interviewed the widower, right, Bonnie's husband, he he said clearly, according to the cops, oh, I hated him. I'm glad he's dead, you know, but I didn't do yeah. it. And frankly, you know, when people say stuff like that, it, you know, lots of people can be hated and um, it isn't necessarily motive. Right. But 
no one else would have had the level of motive that Bonnie's husband did. No, I thought that actually was an interesting thing he said. And I thought it sounded to me like, you know, I think it's true, first of all. Yes. But but I think you could read that. You could take that as like, I believe the guy. I believe him that he hated the doctor, didn't like him. And I believe him that he didn't do it. You know what I mean? So I, I think it was also a clever thing to say, intentionally said, um, hoping that not only do they believe you're mad, but they believe your denial, right? But that fingerprint was, and then when they when they trace it to one of the killers, that person apparently talks, right? That person could have said, I don't know how my fingerprint got on here. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who any of these people are. So apparently this guy, when they got confronted, he got confronted about it. They were able to get more information from him. Yeah, he panicked. And I don't really know what one does in a situation like this. How do you explain your fingerprint? You see it coming down and you're like, all right, well, maybe if I cooperate, I may get a little bit of assistance because I got a record myself. So this isn't looking so fantastic. Right. I, 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 you know. Uh, that's what I think would have been in his head. Can I say one other thing, too, that yeah. struck me? It talked about in the, I think it was in the probable cause search warrant, he had taken out, a, Mr. Lee had taken out like a cash loan yes. shortly before this for like $5,000, okay? He claimed he gave like $3,500 to his daughter, $1,500 for expenses. But let's pause there. $5,000, like if that was the money used to pay these guys, it's it's incredible to me that there's people out there, A, willing to kill somebody for hire and be willing to do it for such little money. It's not like they got paid a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000 or half a million dollars. It looks like it's $5,000. I mean, wow. And split among three people. Yeah. Right. So it's not very much at all. Um, I mean, who's to say the level of desperation that they were in and that they needed this money. That's the scary part. Right. That's the scary part when people are that desperate. Dr. Shock was shot in the arm, the chest, and his head. Police say that they saw a light-colored station wagon with no lights leaving the area. Now, the doctor's wife, Nancy, was home at the time of the shooting. She couldn't imagine why anyone would want to kill her husband. She did say that he was in the middle of a malpractice lawsuit. Apparently, he had other complaints about him as well. So there were some problems with the doctor and his treatment. No shell casings were found at the scene. Would that indicate to you, Andy, that this was a little bit more professional? Well, I think what that indicated to the police was that a revolver was used. And then what they found out was uh, Mr. Lee actually had three guns registered to himself. They were all revolvers. I think the speculation was, or the thought was, maybe he loaned his guns to the killers because the police believed a revolver was used because there were no shell casings. Um, so just another little interesting you know, piece of detective work. Mm-hmm. The fingerprint, as we said, belonged to one man, his name, Christopher Anthony Costello. Police say that when they searched Robert Lee's house, as you said, not only did they find the remaining complaint, but then they found seven cell phones and a laptop. Now, that's the part I'm trying to figure out. Who has seven cell phones? And someone who's 83, and I don't mean to be judgmental, but generally these are the folks that are calling their grandchildren to help figure out the phone. Now he goes from like one phone to seven phones. 
very strange. And I didn't see anything connecting the phones to the crime, but it makes you wonder whether you've got multiple cell phones because you've got, you would have to have multiple phone conversations with these people, obviously, to plan this, all the logistics. So it sounds like the phones to be involved. There's no reason for this 83-year-old guy to have seven cell phones, right? Although I was just thinking as you were talking, like if someone were to go through my kitchen drawer, they probably would find like at least three old phones. So I guess if the LAPD broke into Anna Garcia's house, they'd say, and she had four cell phones and a laptop and an iPad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't see anything linking that stuff to the crime, um, but it was it was a lot of cell phones for somebody of that age who who by all accounts, you know, was just a regular person. I think my mom's got like an iPhone one, two, and three just sitting around in a junk drawer, you know, um, the ones that are super, you know, outdated. There you go. See, we all, a logical explanation to why the man had so many cell phones because he probably wasn't, you know, because if they were pertinent to this crime, we would kind of know that already. You would. I think you would for sure. So as we said, that print led to Christopher Costello. He gets arrested then Raymond Jaquette and Mallory Stewart, they all get arrested. And then Robert Lee, the widower, also gets arrested. Prosecutors say that Raymond Jaquette was the getaway driver. He was convicted of second-degree murder in July of 2019 and sentenced in December of that year. Christopher Costello, this is the man with the fingerprint, was found guilty of first-degree murder with special circumstances for his role in the crime. And Mallory Stewart pleaded guilty earlier this year to first-degree murder with a weapons enhancement for firing the weapon that killed Dr. Shock. So Mallory Stewart, according to prosecutors, is the man who pulled the trigger. Now, what about Robert Lee? Well, Robert Lee, who's 83, is going to be sentenced in May. And even if he doesn't get life, pretty much whatever he gets will be the equivalent to life. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. going to die in prison. He is. And I don't know, but there's a part of me that thinks he doesn't have a problem with that. No, I like I said earlier, I it struck me as being somebody who's 83 who thinks I don't have much time left here. I'm so bitter and angry uh, and obsessed over this. I'm going to take out this doctor. And I don't think it just struck me as somebody who didn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what care. I think. Yeah. Moving on to our next case. This involves the killing of a former NBA player. Billy Ray Turner has just been convicted in this case, and he is one of three people implicated. 34-year-old NBA star Lorenzen Wright's decomposing body was found in a swampy field outside of his native Memphis back in 2010. That's how long we've been working on this case as far as you know, details, things went cold for a long time. It was just so, so complicated. Now, everything was cold until someone who was in prison on another case decides to come forward with details. And Andy, I always find those things interesting because sometimes, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's not information which, let's, let's say, the court will ever agree is correct. They'll, they'll feel like, you know, this is just like some person trying to get off on something. And then sometimes the information is truly credible. And in this case, it was. How do you figure that out, you know, as you're going through it? 
Yeah, you see this a lot. You know, like what you'll hear the term is like jailhouse snitch, right? You'll get some information. Um, A lot of times the information, you know, uh, sounds really credible. Other times it sounds really uh, shaky. And, you know, you know, and obviously anytime somebody in prison is providing information to help them, to help them get a reduced sentence, to help them get out of prison earlier, obviously you have to question the motive of that person and the credibility of the information. But like you said here, uh, it was matched up. You know, uh, it was matched up. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, he he basically led, he said to police, I can tell you where the murder weapon is. And that's exactly where they found it. Stunning. I mean, the, the, the murder took place uh, right in the Memphis area, like in a secluded field. The gun is recovered in some lake in, in Mississippi that he takes them there, divers go in, and they find the gun. And so what's funny is I was reading about the trial. The defense attorney was trying to argue that, you know, this guy is not credible. It's all lies, this and that. Well, you know what? When they found the gun in the bottom of the lake in Mississippi, it's game over. Um, yeah. that, that is the most credible information you could possibly find is I'm going to lead you to the murder weapon in a place nobody would have ever found it. Mm-hmm. And that cracks the case that had been cold for years and also led to the arrest of two other accomplices. And one of them turns out to be the NBA star's ex-wife, who he had just recently divorced. Now, this murder for hire plot does include an insurance policy, but this one is a little unusual. And I want to ask you about this because we're going to talk about it in a second. Let's give everybody a few more details and then we'll get into why I find this insurance policy one of the most interesting that I've seen in a while. So for years, it was cold. This Jamie Martin, who was convicted of of serving uh, time, is the one who came forward and made it possible for everyone else to be convicted, including Billy Ray Turner, who has just recently been convicted on this. So turns out that the NBA, that the NBA star was executed in a murder for hire plot that was orchestrated by Wright's ex-wife, Shara. She enlisted the help of Billy Ray Turner, man just convicted, who was kind of like a handyman deacon and maybe even lover. And then she met him through church. And then she used her cousin, Jimmy Martin, the one who was in prison and ratted everybody out because he needed money to get this for his legal defense on the other problem. So he accepts the murder for hire plot because he's facing other legal problems and he needs money for an attorney. Well, I think he's already in prison prison relating to the murder of his girlfriend. Yes, (laughs) exactly. But at the time of of, uh, Lorenzen's murder, he was facing the case and he needed money for his legal defense. So right. you commit another crime. It's like a Ponzi scheme, but it's a criminal Ponzi scheme, right? Right. All right. So now the motive was supposedly to collect a $1 million life insurance policy. But remember that Lorenzen was already divorced from his wife, Shara, and they had six kids. Let's talk about the victim a little bit, and then we will back into the crime. So Lorenzen Wright grew up in Memphis playing basketball, and he even played for the University of Memphis. 1996, he was drafted by the L.A. Clippers. He played 13 seasons in the NBA, including stints with the Atlanta Hawks, Memphis Grizzlies, Sacramento Kings, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. He reportedly made something like 
$52 million over his 13 seasons in the NBA, but by the time his career was over, he and his wife Sherry and their six kids were broke. How many wow. times do we see this? Wow, that's sad. It's constant. It's, that, it's That's a really long career. 13 seasons in the NBA is an incredibly long career, and that's a lot of money he made. Yeah. You know, a lot of money. That wow. is, and that's a lot of money to disappear. So the two of them ended up getting divorced in February of 2010. This is after 13 years together. And uh, published reports say part of the problem had to do with money and the fact that they didn't have a lot of money left and they were struggling. Okay, remember that February 2010, they divorce. July of that same year, a few months later, he disappears. He just disappears. So... His ex-wife, Shara, told the police that he had actually been to visit her in Tennessee that evening, visiting the children, and that she told police, allegedly, that he left carrying drugs and money, and she insinuated at the time that he was going out for some kind of a drug deal. That's what she tells cops. Now, what's interesting, and I think really botched things for a long time in this case, it's just my opinion, is that after he leaves her house, and he really did, Lorenzen really did go to visit his ex-wife and the kids, um, about midnight of that night, so the following morning early, there's a 911 call from his phone. Um, he's unable to tell the dispatcher exactly where he is, but you can hear him screaming. The dispatcher could hear gunshots, and then there was silence. For reasons which are unclear to me to this day, that dispatcher didn't elevate this to his or her supervisor. And therefore this call got lost in the system and no one connected the fact that that was Lorenzen calling for help. Wow. 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 Yeah. Wow. I am, I'm just like astonished that one little detail would forever stall this case. You know, isn't it funny? Just one little, one little, uh, you know, kind of break in the communication system, passing that call along, following up on that call, determining exactly where that call came from, you know, the area it came from, uh, matching it up to who was missing. You know, that was a huge lead at the time, and apparently a pretty long call because my understanding is, you can hear numerous gunshots. Yeah. During the call, so he's clearly running and getting shot at. Yeah. During this whole time, I mean, I just was so horrified. I just thought I pictured what was going through this guy's mind as you're calling 911, you're running through a field for your life and gunshots are ringing out. I mean, I just I picture that in my head of like just how horrible that must have been for him. But what a great lead that was if it would have been followed up on right away. Absolutely. In fact, no one reported Lorenzen missing until three days later, and it was his mother who contacted police and said, look, I haven't heard from my son. And that's when they, you know, went to the ex-wife and said, oh yeah, he had been here, he came to visit, and then, you know, he left with money and drugs, and, and that whole story begins. About 10 days after he disappeared, his body is finally found. So there's a seven-day window from the time his mother reports him missing until his body is found. That's a very long time to not know where your dad is, where your son is, all of this. 
So he's ultimately found in a wooded area. Let's remember that Lorenzen was only 34 years old. He may have, you know, had a long career at the NBA, but he was still an incredibly young man. And he had been shot 11 times with two different guns. It's just so violent, like you said, so violent. Hours after the shooting, now this is when police are starting to put things together, but not really, because remember, we still don't know about that 911 call. So hours after the shooting, turns out that a neighbor of Shara's saw her and an unidentified male setting a bonfire in her backyard. But it was a hot summer night in the middle of the summer in Tennessee, which is Mm. why the neighbor was like, what are you doing? It's like 90 degrees out. Yeah. But didn't turn out to be anything, right? It, it's it, when you involve multiple people, you know, the thing about it is you see these murder for hire plots in both these cases. Okay. Uh, it's always people who've never done it before, right? It's a, it's your first time. Okay. You decide to do it. And when you got multiple people, you've got multiple people who can, who can tell, right? Like here, somebody wound up telling, uh, and you got multiple people who can screw up, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong and they usually do. They leave behind clues. They botch something, you know, and so in this one, too, I mean, you see that as well. I mean, you can't always trust people, right? You never no, know. Of course not. And and I guess one could say, well, you should leave it to the professionals. But finding a professional hitman or woman is a lot more complicated and is going to cost you a heck of a lot more money for that professionalism, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's not like you can uh, you can go onto a database and find the professional hitman. You know, I mean, like there is no there is no database, and people, regular Joes like this eighty three year old guy in California, don't have access to like a uh, a a hit list. You know. You got to find people. I don't even know how you find somebody, frankly. Well, I mean, we do. We have a lot of instances, a lot of cases where on the, you know, dark web where people can find just about anything and pay for things for that way and find people. But again, you know, the authorities are always, always, always monitoring that specifically for these murder for hire plots. I've seen them where they've they have found (laughs) the case there and and backtracked and then were able to warn the person who they were trying to hire the hit for. So I, I've seen yeah. it in so many different ways play out. Now, well, I really- one last thing on that, can I follow up? Yeah. I mean, you can't, the people you can't trust are anybody willing to commit a murder for hire, right? Is not somebody you can trust. I mean, that's, you're hiring somebody who automatically is untrustworthy, you know? So it's, it's that's the inherent risk, obviously. And that is, you know, what's so fascinating about crime is that in this world of crime, one chooses to trust another criminal. It's fascinating, right? (laughs) The honor system. Now, this, I want to say that this case really did grow grow cold for many, many years. And in fact, the year after, they they offered a reward for $21,000, but that really didn't lead to anything. So while this case is cold, I now want to talk about the insurance policy, because I think this is going to be very interesting about what was going on in the family while the police were trying to figure out what was going on. And really, they didn't break it until somebody talked. It was as simple as that. So police were always curious about the $1 million insurance policy. Remember, they were divorced at the time. And this one was driving me crazy as I was researching this, because I'm like, how the heck could she collect on an insurance policy? If they were divorced, they would have taken care of this already. Uh Uh-huh. 
as part of the condition of divorce. The wife insisted that Lorenzen take out a $1 million life insurance policy she said to take care of the kids. Isn't that? I've never heard of that. As a condition of divorce, you must take out a $1 million policy. I've never heard of that either. That's really intriguing. You know, it's not yes. like she insisted on on some money, like let's set up a trust. Let's put money in the bank, set up a trust. When the kids get older, they can access the money, a life insurance policy to take care of yes. the kids. Ding, 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 yep. ding, 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 ding is what yeah. I was like. Oh my goodness, that's the most fascinating thing I've heard yet. Now, yeah. Shara, to be absolutely clear here, the wife, ex-wife was not the beneficiary. The six children were, but she was the administrator. So these are minors. Police say that within one month of getting the $1 million in insurance, it was all gone except for maybe five bucks. Oh my gosh. Is that oh my God. incredible? Gone. $1 million you know, gone. Yeah. You got a situation where there's not some trustee third party who you go to and say, you know what, the kids need school clothes. Okay, how much do you need? Oh, I need I need $500, okay? To think that she just had complete control and could access the money entirely, immediately, you know, they didn't even set it up so there was some kind of third party to monitor it. You know? Andy, so. you're leading us into the next part of this fascinating family drama. So Lorenzen's father who is the grandfather of these penniless children, is furious. He's like, oh my God, what has she done? He takes Shara, the mother, ex-wife, widow, I guess she's not really a widow, um, to court. And the court decides we must set up a trust fund for the children because there's still going to be MBA pensions and, and other monies coming in, which will help raise these children, six children. That's pretty expensive, getting a lot of kids through college. So that all gets worked out. They set up a trust fund. They, they, you know, get an administrator. Okay. That's moving along. Now Shara has decided to move on with her life. She becomes an ordained minister in her church. She marries a sheriff's deputy. Isn't that convenient? She divorces him, marries somebody else. I don't know. She has a lot of boyfriends. She moves. I can't even keep up with Shara's life. But in 2017, it all comes tumbling down when that murder weapon is found in the lake. It was one of the alleged accomplices, who happens to be Shara's cousin, Jimmy Martin, who tells the cops they find it and everything comes tumbling down. So Jimmy Martin was already serving time when he came forward and he received immunity on Lorenzen's murder for this information. What was unclear to me, I saw that. So he got immunity, you know, for this case. Mm -hmm. What was unclear to me, I wondered whether he got any um, reduced sentence or benefits in his, his the case he was, you know, uh, incarcerated for at the time, you know, because it's kind of weird. Like if you're going to come forward with something and just get immunity for that particular case, it didn't really help him in his other case. I wasn't sure if he was trying to get a benefit from his, his current sentence or if he just wanted to get this off his chest and was upset about it, you know, which it could be too. Or he was just mad at, at his cousin, mad at her for some reason. Who knows what was going on? Um, but again, you know, and this is a family relationship and he still uh, spilled the beans on her. They mm -hmm. would never crack the case without him. They couldn't have, even as suspicious as you could have been about the insurance money, the way the divorce was set up, all of this, you could have been suspicious about 
all of this. But unless you could find that murder weapon and then, you know, that meant that what he was telling you the truth was the truth, which then leads you to take the next leap. Is he then telling the truth about the two accomplices? Yeah, yeah. The gun in the lake was amazing, you know, because I think the evidence at trial against uh, the other guy was circumstantial. You know, his cell phone was found, like, like his pinging in the area of, you know, where Lorenzen was shot. Um, there's circumstantial stuff. I don't know if it would have been enough to convict him just on that beyond a reasonable doubt. But when you've got when you've got a guy telling the story, because what what also apparently happened, the guy who found who told you about the murder weapon, the cousin, he also said they had tried to kill Lorenzen in an earlier attempt in Atlanta, breaking into his apartment and he wasn't home. So they couldn't actually do it. So once you find that murder weapon under in the lake, there's no reason not to believe everything this guy says. Right. I mean, he, mm -hmm. it's just been cooperated. And apparently he said that Shara was the mastermind. And yeah, they tried to get him in his condo. <laughs> All systems go, except for the fact that your intended, you know, victim isn't there. Kind of screws right. everything up for you. So right. not very I good information. Also, I think she also wrote a book. Shara wrote a book, I think, in 2015, you know, about her life with Lorenzo. I mean, this is what's so tragic. She's writing a book about, you know, her and him and all her stories. And yet she's the one who masterminded the plot to kill him. And by the way, she pled guilty to this. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It is so, so um, cousin, the cousin in this case, who's sitting in, in prison, who leads the, the tip off here, that leads to the arrest of Shara Wright and her ex-lover, Billy Ray Turner. So according to authorities, Shara Wright reportedly orchestrated the plan that ultimately kills Lorenzen. So while he was visiting Memphis from Atlanta, she lured him somehow to this secluded field. She told him that she was going to meet someone to get some money, but then she also sent some suggestive sexual texts, which is unclear whether that's what got him to town, that's what got him to the field, but there was a lot going on that was that was just making sure that Lorenzen was going to show up when they needed to show up and then ambush him. And that is where he was chased and killed in the field. So cousin Jimmy Martin denies, denies, he's the one who ratted everybody out, he denies that he was in the shooting. Does that make any sense? He denies that he well, did the shooting. I, I, I believed, you know, I, I would believe him until I heard you say there were two different types of guns used. So mm -hmm. when I heard that, uh, that made me very skeptical because it sounds like the plot is a three-way plot, the cousin, the ex-wife and the kind of romantic interest. So, and he's also the guy who's involved in the prior attempt to kill Lorenzen. So if there's two weapons, there's two shooters and he sounds like the second guy. Mm -hmm. The only reason I pause is because he, he he led you to the murder weapon, but maybe he just doesn't want anybody to know he was involved. Maybe he's too embarrassed about that, doesn't want family mm -hmm. to know. But the fact there's two weapons, to me, makes me think he was there. I mean, just in my gut. He admits to disposing of the murder weapon, but he yeah. does not admit to killing Lorenzen. Well, yeah. 
So let's get back to all these, where everybody stands as far as convictions go. So the jury deliberated for about two hours before they reached the guilty verdict for Billy Ray Turner, found guilty of first degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy. Now let's go back to Shara back in 2019 when she gets arrested, she enters into a plea deal. She ends up pleading guilty to facilitation of a murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison she will be eligible for release in nine years. I saw that. I was like, oh my God, nine years? I can't believe she's eligible so quickly. Holy exactly. Cow. Well, she I got mean, a good well, deal. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why she must have had a good lawyer because that's why she pled guilty. I mean, you know, she got that kind of deal. If you go to trial and you get sentenced, that judge is going to hammer her because she, of all the people, you know, this makes it sound like she's the least culpable. No, you're the most culpable. You plotted the whole thing. You know, mm -hmm. you got somebody to pull the trigger, but it was your idea. He only got killed because of you. So if anybody should get life, it's you. Um, I know. Yeah. I know. So it's wild. shocking. Yeah. Nine years. Jeez. Now, <sighs> that doesn't mean she'll get it, but the fact she's eligible for it. I Correct. Mean, yeah, because that really would have been worked into the deal. Exactly. Yeah, that's really short. Yeah. Very, very surprising. But nonetheless, it it took a long time to get justice in this case. Can't say it's perfect justice, but there's some justice in this case. Well, and especially I'm so glad because this was kind of like, you know, because Lorenzen was the hometown star, played high school, college basketball in Memphis, was like, you know, so well known and loved in, in Memphis. Uh, his His killing was such a shocker. I'm just so glad it was solved. And there's justice now for, you know, the family uh, and, and everybody now can kind of put it to bed. Yeah, but now you have six children who are truly orphaned. Mom is in prison and dad is dead. Yeah. No, but but my point is, at least we now know what happened. right? Yes, of course. And of these course. These kids aren't going to grow up with this false notion that like, you know, she had nothing to do with it. They now know what happened. It's horrible. And hopefully, I don't know the, the details of that trust, but if he's got a pension and other things, maybe there is a way that there are some funds for these poor kids that'll help them, you know, pay for college and things like that, because they were entitled to that million dollars that got squandered. And um, I just hope they have a support. They have a support uh, net for not only financially, but, you know, uh, emotionally with family and, and friends and things like that. We want to let everyone know that True Crime Daily, the podcast, will be featured on Dateline this Friday, April 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern. Dateline is doing a special on the Valerie Cincinnelli case. This is the case of a former New York City police officer who is accused of having her boyfriend hire a hitman to kill her estranged husband while she was in the middle of a messy divorce it's a crazy case that we covered here on Crime Watch Daily, but here is a clip and preview of the Dateline story. On a sunny May morning in 2019, two detectives delivered tragic news that Valerie Cincinnelli's 32-year-old husband was murdered. Sorry, like I okay, can't I... really believe this. She started shaking, crying. i never forget it. It appeared he'd been shot as he was trying to get out of his car. The detectives told Valerie they didn't have much information to share yet. If anyone understood the urgency of a police investigation, it was Valerie Cincinnati, the decorated 12-year veteran of the New York City Police Department. She is tough as nails. She's attractive, hardworking, a mother. She's such a badass. 
Journalist Anna Garcia covered the case for her podcast, True Crime Daily. The more I dug, the more it just got more complicated and outrageous. Never had any clue what was about to happen. Never. Never in a million years. What's fascinating about this case, Andy, is that the boyfriend, right, who was supposed to facilitate the hit, ends up being picked up on um, another charge on something while he's in this relationship with the New York City cop. And to get himself off, this is really what I think happened, to, to get the charges off his back, he says, oh, have I got something for you? I can hand you a New York City police officer who's trying to kill her husband. And the FBI is like, huh, what? And so he um, had, uh, uh, you know, recording devices. He recorded all his conversations with her. In fact, the FBI then goes to the estranged husband and says, your wife is trying to kill you. That man is like, oh my God. And the FBI says to him, will you help us set up your murder? So, oh, my God. oh yeah, it's unbelievable. I, so I'd be like, no, I don't want to be around her. <laughs> right. So here's what they do. The FBI stages photographs to make it look like the man, the husband is killed in his car, slumped over. They have pictures of everything. And so what they do is, and the FBI is in on this sting is to get Valerie Cincinnati. They go to her house, police, local police on Long Island, go to her house and they show her the photos and say, we're so sorry to tell you, but your husband has been murdered. And so she cries. They have the body cams going. And this is all part of the FBI sting. It's an incredible case. Wow. And it's, it's, it goes back to the truth is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. It is. And she's such an interesting person because she comes from a family of cops. Her her brother was in the FBI, was a specialist in financial crimes. After she gets arrested, he ends up killing himself. You know, he does it while he's in Texas with his FBI colleagues in a bar. I uh, mean, it's just and it's just horrendous. And so yeah. there are allegations like she ends up getting a deal and it goes from murder for hire to tampering with evidence is what she ends up pleading to and could be getting out soon. And oh here's... God. Here's the interesting part about her. Her family says they believe it was the boyfriend who manipulated her and that he kind of made it up and that he was never going to go through with it and that she never really was going to go through with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I'm not buying that. Yeah, buying that. that's what the I'm whole that's what's so fascinating. So I can't wait to see what Dateline does with this. So the other big case we're going to talk about is the Starved Rock murders in which you have been representing the man who was convicted of these three murders back in 1960. You have said on this program, you said in the HBO documentary, that you believe that he may not be the killer and you've been working really hard to get DNA evidence. I don't know if you, what's your update on this one, Andy, through the podcast? Yeah. Yeah, so I represent Chester Weger, who got convicted in 1961 of the brutal bludgeoning of three women in the Stavrock State Park. He served over 60 years in prison, got out on parole recently. Uh, I've been representing him for the last, you know, several years. I believe he's innocent. And we were able to find physical evidence to test. Uh, it is being tested as we speak. I should get the results probably by the end of April, maybe early May. 
Uh, and that will hopefully, you know, uh, we'll see where we go. I'm hoping it all comes back, you know, in a way that we can push forward to prove our case of innocence. But in the meantime, uh, there's so much to this case that I thought it would be a good idea to do a podcast, which I'd never done before. But I'm so glad I have because it's a great way to tell the story with detail, uh, you know, to break a case down. And what we do every episode uh, is I post on our website, andyhalepodcast.com. You've got a website. The podcast is the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I post all the documents I refer to, police reports, interviews, photographs, newspaper articles. And I tell people, you know, I encourage you, go read it yourself because anybody who's got an opinion about Chester Weger, and everybody does in, in, in central Illinois, whether you think he's guilty or innocent, it's based on anecdotal evidence, what your mom told you, what you read in the paper. I mean, I get it, you know, but what nobody has done, and I don't expect anybody to have done this, they haven't read the court file, they haven't read the police reports or the old newspaper articles. And so a podcast has been a great way to tell the story in detail, to walk through it point by point and really educate people. And I've had so many people reach out and be like, wow, we didn't know about that. We didn't know about that suspect. We didn't know that the murder weapon got ruled out within days of the murder, all kinds of things. So it's really been a great way. And I'm going to do it again in some other cases, I think, where I'm trying to help people prove their innocence. Have a podcast where you can just share information and start a discussion in a very kind of informative and forensic way. It's interesting. After you were on and the HBO documentary was just being released. I sat down and I I watched the documentary and it was interesting because then I interacted with a bunch of our regular listeners and viewers who like to comment on YouTube about it and this case. So as I'm watching the documentary, I'm thinking, and I, I just had you on the program, so I'm like, okay, so Andy's so convinced that, you know, that the the man convicted is actually innocent and I'm watching, watching, watching the presentation of this documentary. And then at the very end, I have to tell you, Andy, I then started thinking, hmm, I'm I'm not so sure. That, <laughs> I'm not so exactly sure. Why, yeah, I, I'm not surprised you had that reaction because because I actually I think if you watch the HBO documentary, which I didn't make, you know, I'm not the director. I'm just in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't control what goes in 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 that three part series. Um, I'm thrilled there was something in HBO. It brought a lot of attention to the case. I thought it was really well done. But in three hours, you know, you can't tell a story. I've had, I'm going to have probably at least 10 podcast episodes, right? <laughs> I mean, I could have 20 more. So there's so much. And in a, in a show like HBO, you're not going to dive into like super duper details. You know, you're telling a story visually, right? Mm -hmm. And that story was told through the eyes of the prosecutor in 1960's son, who's been on this kind of mission to find out, did my dad get it right? Okay. Yes, it's brilliant. Yeah. And so that's kind of the theme of the case. It's not like an Andy Hale three part series. Let me make my case why I think Chester Weger's innocent. Uh, but that's what the podcast is. So I encourage people out there, listen to my podcast. There are so many things I bring up that are such eye openers uh, about the, the case physically, forensically. Uh, we talk about the concept of false confessions. And then we're going to culminate with the DNA results, hopefully pretty soon. Um, so we're kind of doing it as we speak. And I want to make sure I understand. I think last time you were on, when you talked about the DNA evidence, it wasn't so much 
that it was maybe going to point to someone else, but you thought it the absence of his DNA might be the way in. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the first step is the absence of his DNA. You know, we've got eight pieces of evidence, uh, mostly hairs uh, entwined found at the crime scene, some cigarette butts. Um, so if there's no Chester Weger DNA in any of that, when I combine that with all the things I talk in my podcast about, the, the factors of a false confession, his story making no sense, contradicting the physical evidence, there's a compelling argument to me, super compelling argument that he had nothing to do with this crime. But we can potentially take those DNA results and link them to somebody else. So potentially, you know, we have a short list of suspects we could potentially link it to somebody else who's already a suspect or like what happened in the case we talked about today with Mr. Lee, the fingerprint got submitted into APHIS, the automated fingerprint database, mm-hmm. and it connected to a guy. We potentially could, you know, connect this to somebody else and see who that person is or through, you know, uh, family trees and genealogy. Now there's all kinds of things you can do. So my DNA results, it might only be step one. You know, it, there might be a step two and a step three if we get unknown DNA to try to figure out who that was. Right. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a process still. Uh, we'll continue to report about it on our podcast. Uh, so there we've made a lot of progress, but there's a long way to go. I'm fascinated by this, Andy. I'm so glad that you came back and that you updated us on this case because so many people just really enjoy this 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 look into the criminal justice system in trying to unravel a case that's decades old. It's just, it's really fascinating. And the last thing I'll say is in all the cases that I'm trying to help several people right now, I always try to start with the forensics, right? I'm never gonna convince somebody on a 60 year old case on a he said, she said, you know, well, Chester Weger denies it. Okay, that, that's, you know, I'm not gonna, <laughs> you know, get his conviction vacated on that. So I always try to look at physical evidence and forensics. That's what happened in the case with Dr. Shock, right? They mm-hmm. found the thumbprint, which found the guy involved in the case. You know, there was circumstantial evidence pointing to this disgruntled guy who lost his wife. You've never been able to prove it, even though it sure looked suspicious. And so the forensics nowadays, it's so advanced. Uh, if you've got physical evidence in a case that's old, you might have a window to try to get some insight into solving an old case. Mm. So exciting. Well, we hope that you'll come back again and you'll be a, a member of our crime family, as we like to say. Um, and Andy, Andy, where can people find you? you? You mentioned you have a website just for the podcast, but I think you've got a pretty big digital footprint. Yeah, you can. Uh, Twitter's probably the best place. Andy M. Hale uh, Esquire, which is ESQ, uh, where we have our, you know, twi- we tweet out a lot of just basic information. And then the podcast, like I said, AndyHalePodcast.com. We have all the episodes there and we've got tons of documents, photos, reports. If you want to really dig deep and read about the Starbuck murders, I've got enough to keep you busy for days. Excellent. Excellent. We'll have some citizen sleuths helping you here, right? Love Maybe it. you missed a little piece. Absolutely. I'll take all the help I can get. I'll take any tip I can get for sure. Great. Uh, You all can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Sometimes I will talk about crime, but sometimes it's about baby birds. One never knows. Or butterflies that I rescue from the garage. You know, (laughs) that is my life. Not necessarily interesting, but it's mine. (laughs) 
We thank you all for joining us today. That's our episode. Of course, uh, subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. And of course, you can find all our episodes of all our podcasts, this one and the others that we do, wherever you get podcasts. So until next time, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.